Welcome to the 459th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. I hope your Christmas was good. We're headed into the new year. A few days left to do what you can to make this a great year. Got to make every day count, right? We spent Christmas in Texas celebrating with Addie Delaney Meinrich and her family and her neighbors and had a great time. We started out with a baby shower uh, because we're going to be welcoming Cecilia Joy into the family in February, hopefully. Um, And then we had a Christmas Eve dinner and a Christmas Day dinner, all of which were plant-based. Two out of the three were shared with people that were totally not plant-based. So, you know, again, I want to highlight that it's great to celebrate with people of all diversities as well as all food choices. You don't all have to eat alike. Um, You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to preach to other people. Um, You don't have to eat what they eat. You can eat um, what you feel is healthy for you. So we made uh, stuffed shells. I made an artichoke spinach dip. I made a pimento cheese dip. I made four loaves of sourdough bread while I was in Texas. We had um, fajitas when we were at the baby shower. Rice and beans and avocado. We had some vegan cookies. We had some vegan cupcakes. Um, But we stayed plant-based. And when you're eating good food, the sweets, you know, it used to be back in the day before I was vegan, uh, Christmas and the holidays were all about sweets and candy. And, you know, I used to actually get indigestion from all the oil associated with the the candy and cookies. But uh, I found that with eating good food, you don't have that sweets craving. So, yeah, a cookie here or there, but that certainly wasn't the main ingredient of the holidays. So we had a great time. We went for runs. Uh, we went for walks, we played, and uh, it, was, it was a great holiday. So I hope your holiday was good as well. The reason why I bring it up is that I had a patient come in today who had gained significant weight over the holidays and hosted a party, and the only thing she made for herself was a salad. The rest of the people brought in entrees that were completely not plant-based, and that was rinse and repeat throughout the holiday Um, gatherings for this particular person. So blood pressure issues, weight issues. um, And the person's actually a good cook. Um, It comes down to the fear of being rejected sometimes with your plant-based cooking. I got to tell you, people ate our stuffed shells. And the funny part about it was I forgot to buy the shells uh, when we went um, shopping. So I ended up using lasagna noodles and rolled them into make your own shells, DIY shells. I rolled them into more of a manicotti looking um, uh, design uh, and it actually served up well. But people ate our dips, our bread, our, our stuffed shells. We ate fajitas that were from you know a restaurant. Um, so it all works out. Uh, and nobody says this is plant-based, don't eat it. Nobody asked ingredients. Um, you know, so it's, it's completely doable, and it should never prohibit sharing the company of friends and family just because you eat a little different. 
and the reality of it is there's a huge swing in calories when you make your food plant-based because you're eliminating a lot of oil and of course you know everything has cheese in it at this time of year so just by going to cashew cheese and cutting back on a little bit and using the bare minimum um, you can save a lot of fat and a lot of calories certainly you're saving a lot of cholesterol you're eliminating eggs butter and the like so um, you really can get through the holidays with a significantly less amount of hidden calories um, and not really have to watch so much what you're actually eating. Today on the Facebook, you know, there's always something that blows my mind. And there was actually somebody that did a demo on how to make an M&M casserole. And basically, you just put every kind of M&M into a casserole bowl and toss them and that was their so-called dish and when you when it comes down to this is something that people demonstrate is how to make an m&m casserole you know the level of cooking skills that we have in our society today um, i've seen things where people you know um, dump eggnog on top of cookies in a tin and then take the parchment paper out and call this a dessert and so you know people just take things that are awful and, and make them much worse so again you, if you don't know what you're eating in some of these things you can get into big giant trouble with um, not only uh, calories and fat and cholesterol and salt but also an added ingredients you know dye number whatever um, stabilizers emulsifiers and all the all the like that you can get a tremendous amount of toxin over a holiday and then you know, add that to the salt intake and people get into trouble with their heart. Um, they don't feel good enough to exercise or go out and do their walks. And one thing leads to another. So you got a week to go before New Year's Eve. So rein it in, try a New Year's Eve dinner um, that is, you know, sauerkraut is usually part of uh, good luck for New Year's Eve. You can make a lentil loaf instead of a pork roast if that's what you do. Um, you know, so a lot of different things to sub in for a nice New Year's Eve dinner or New Year's Day dinner does not have to be, um, you know, a traditional oily, salty meal. The other thing that happens over the holiday season when people are traveling, especially since people haven't been traveling as much because of COVID, and they haven't been celebrating together and people are more isolated, um, people are getting um, infections and this is... You know, what you would see on TV is the height of flu and cold season. And, you know, my theory on it is that um, people's immune systems are down for a variety of reasons, and one of which is they're just not getting the little exposures that they would with the social interactions that they had before COVID. All of a sudden, we're afraid of each other, and, you know, you're not getting um, just a little boost to your immune system that it takes to remain healthy. We have had tremendous success in our practice treating uh, COVID, the flu, bronchitis. We haven't had any hospitalizations be because of it because we treat people early, promptly, aggressively, and we stay in touch with them. Um, you know, a lot of people think that, um, you know, we have a membership practice and they're healthy and they don't need us and they have things under control, but when you need us, you need us, and um, I dare you to try to call a big box office and get somebody to answer the phone or treat you um, 
with all the things that you need to be treated for to get yourself through COVID, long COVID, if you happen to have that, um, or influenza or bronchitis. So, you know, we treat early and aggressively um, to prevent, you know, symptoms. And what happens is people get these diseases, they start to get a cough, their airways get inflamed, and they become more um, susceptible to bacterial overgrowth, and they end up getting a pneumonia on top, and they can get into big trouble. So that's the reason to be so aggressive with vitamins um, and, you know, um, turmeric and ginger and um, a lot of other antioxidants. We use antibiotics when needed. We use steroids when needed. Um, certainly maintaining good nutrition, altering people's nutrition, you know, when you don't feel like eating, how do you maintain calories? How do you maintain hydration? So we work with people on a daily basis to get them through these illnesses if necessary and keep them out of the hospital. And we've been quite successful in doing that. Um, and I think that's where traditional box medicine really falls flat on its face because people want to do, uh, most physicians are under the gun uh, to do a lot of billable procedures, to do a lot of billable well visits, to do a lot of billable uh, non-necessary testing. And then when somebody's actually sick, there's no room and they're scheduled to see them. With a limited practice like ours, we always have time to get people in to see them, talk to them, take care of them. Um, and that's an advantage. You know, I wish that insurance companies would reimburse for that or recognize that being a good doctor is better than being a um, you know, prescription provider, but it doesn't. And so that we can keep our practice small. Um, we do charge a membership fee. Like Addie and I talked about uh, before Christmas, um, our full membership, I act like somebody's doctor. They have my name and phone number um, or my email and phone number and can text me, but we're very aggressive in the office as well to get people what they need. Uh, wherever they are in the country, um, whether they're traveling or they're here in Florida. Um, so it makes it, you know, um, good for them to know that they kind of have us in their back pocket all the time. For people that just want coaching, um, nutritional coaching, wellness coaching, mobility coaching, we have a level two membership where um, Addie and I speak to um, a client once a month, different times, of course, and go over personalized plan for them to maximize their nutrition, mobility, uh, and healthcare goals, help them interpret tests, um, help them strategize on um, their overall health as far as reversing disease, medication withdrawal, and so forth. And then there's a level um, that Addie speaks uh, once a month as a dietitian, and all of the levels people have access to our online content. We have recently added a just online content as well. You still get to see our mobility classes, our nutrition classes, lectures, demos. Um, you can watch those live, but they're also uh, available on our members-only website. So you can have live interaction with us as far as uh, putting chat questions in during that time or watch them at your leisure. Um, so if you're interested in what our practice is about, you know, check out the website at drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y. And on that same line, there was a recent study looking at um, hospitals that were owned um, by private equity groups. And they looked at um, those private equity group hospitals and found that 
Uh, out of all hospitals, all private hospitals, 9% are private equity, 386 in the, in the United States. Uh, 30% of for-profit hospitals are private equity. And 34% of them are located in rural areas. And why this is uh, important, um, Texas has the most with 85. Um, New Mexico has the highest proportion. 43% of their hospitals are private equity. Um, most psychiatric institutions, or, or a lot of psychiatric institutions, the highest at 24% as far as specialty uh, hospitals. But what was found was there was a 25% increase in adverse events um, with a private equity hospital, 27% increase in falls, a 38% increase in bloodstream infection, um, and despite having less central lines and probably less critical patients, outcomes are much worse. And the reason that is, is because they are extremely driven to profit. So when big box medical groups and hospitals are driven for profit, not health care, um, care goes. Less nurses, less staff, uh, people are overworked, priorities are adjusted, and um, people don't do as well. So your insurance might pay for it, but, you know, what are you actually getting? So you're getting ripped off by paying a high insurance premium, and you're not getting care when you actually need it, which is um, very unfortunate. Most people think that dementia and Alzheimer's are something that happens to the elderly, but there is a significant set of, popul of the population that gets what's called early-onset dementia, and that is defined as dementia before age 70. Um, and there was a recent study in the UK um, that looked at what are the particular risk factors for getting early onset dementia. And they reviewed uh, 356,052 participants, um, and they assessed 39 different uh, possible points as far as risk factors for early dementia. And they came up with 15 factors that were significantly associated with dementia far and above other risk factors. Um, and the interesting thing is most of these can be um, altered uh, or addressed, especially as a, health, as a society, we could do this much easier. But one, lower, um, lower formal education and lower socioeconomical status. Um, so between the lowest and the highest, there was a significant um, early onset dementia in those people that were from a lower uh, socioeconomic status. Uh, again, you know, you can go back to the other study and look at where the for-profit um, hospitals are and, you know, kind of link that together with overall health care in these areas as well. Um, if you have two APOE genes, it increases your risk of early onset dementia. Interestingly, if you're Nigerian and you live in Nigeria and you eat a Nigerian diet, which is very high in fiber, um, uh, they have a very low incidence of early onset dementia despite having two of these alleles. Alcohol, um, no alcohol was um, associated with early onset dementia, as was heavy alcohol. Um, a little alcohol seemed to be uh, a protective factor. Social isolation, and that was defined as visiting friends or family less than one time a month 
Um, these people had a significant risk for increased early onset dementia. Vitamin D deficiency, so a vitamin D level less than 10. Um, again, that may imply that people don't get out, don't get out in the sunlight. So they're not, you know, so not only not socially interactive, but they're not getting out, uh, tend to be a poor health status all around. A high uh, C-reactive protein, which is a sign of inflammation, is greater than 10 milligrams per liter. Um, so inflammatory conditions that affect other also affect the brain, increased risk of uh, dementia. There have been studies over time looking at viruses, so or prions associated with meat consumption. Uh, remember, mad, remember mad cow disease? Uh, it went away in the press, but not necessarily completely away as far as um, dietary risk. But again, inflammatory conditions that can affect the brain uh, can um, also lead to early dementia. Lower hand grip strength for a woman less than 25 kilograms or a man less than 40 kilograms. So on a uh, squeeze uh, machine that measures how much force you can apply, uh, lower hand grip, again, a weakened person in general, weak loss of muscle. Um, I've talked before about lack of muscle mass, lack of blood flow to the brain, increased risk of early onset dementia. So you can basically, you know, more frail person at a younger age, higher risk of dementia. Hearing impairment, uh, that was either a yes or a no. Uh, so people that had impaired hearing had an increased risk of early dementia. Orthostatic hypotension, meaning when you stand up, your blood pressure drops instead of your blood vessels constricting to get blood flow to your head. Um, that can be associated with an autonomic neuropathy. So um, uh, brainstem issues, autonomic um, neuropathies associated with diabetes, um, inflama inflammation of the nerves again, um, or just decreased muscle mass and, and the decreased ability to get the blood flow to the, to the brain. A history of stroke uh, obviously is associated with the increased uh, onset of early dementia. Diabetes um, at any age increases your risk of early onset dementia. Heart disease, again, lack of blood flow to the head. Uh, decrease in, again, vascular disease where it's one place, it's usually someplace else. So um, any place you have vascular disease um, would make you um, more likely to have vascular disease of the brain, therefore leading to uh, early onset dementia. And then depression. Um, again, it may be associated with social, social isolation, uh, it may be related to um, socioeconomic status uh, or, you know, overall life circumstance um, as well. But again, these things are really, uh, the majority of them are uh, able to be uh, addressed. And, you know, as a medical profession, this is what we should be doing instead of, you know, looking to these areas to take advantage of for a for a uh, private equity group to come in and swoop in and take care of these people or not take care of these people, um, educating people on being more healthy uh, and the simple things. You know, it's simple things. It's it's not um, not complicated. You know, um, rural society, rural areas of the country, the places in the in the country where healthcare is the worst tend to be associated where the Dollar General stores and the Dollar Trees are. And a lot of people get their food from the Dollar Trees, Dollar General, um, gas stations. And so it tends to be um, cheap, cheap food, fast food. 
um, poor nutritional quality. So, you know, educating people about farmer's market and having fresh produce and educating people on the simple thing, potatoes, rice, beans, simple things, um, can make life a lot better for a lot of people. Getting outside, walking, you know, it drives me insane to see people driving their children um, two blocks to the bus stop. Um, get out and walk with your kids. Demonstrate that, um, you know, movement is good. And again, you know, diabetes is, is uh, very highly correlated with body mass index, so normalizing body mass index uh, from an early age. We see in more and more children that are overweight and obese. Um, early uh, young adults, um, overweight and obese, it's going to increase the risk of dementia, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and, and everything uh, associated with it. I don't understand, I don't think in my observation of years as practicing medicine and watching how people eat, I, I don't see people being able to eat this terrible diet and continue to be healthy. Uh, it's one, everybody balloons up after 40. And now you're starting to see people balloon up even, you know, as children, uh, children being obese because they're not eating at home. Uh, they're eating fast food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's, and it's really, really um, a sad situation, but all of which can be avoided. So sometimes people don't realize, or maybe they're not afraid of heart disease. Uh, maybe they think cancer can be cured. But everybody realizes that dementia, once it starts, it's uh, almost impossible to reverse uh, to any significant degree. You can delay the onset, um, again, by being aggressive, uh, looking at these risk factors. One of the risk factors was being alone. And there was another study um, just recently published looking at pet ownership versus um, dementia uh, factors. And pet ownership versus living alone versus living uh, among, um, you know, other adults uh, in a population. And they found that pet ownership was associated with a decrease in decline in verbal cognition, a decrease in decline of verbal memory, and a decrease uh, decline in verbal fluency. And that is both, you know, dogs or cats. It held true with people just living with an animal more so than if people live with humans and an animal. So you didn't get a whole lot of advantage if you had a dog or cat if you lived with or you were surrounded by other humans. But certainly people that live in isolation or live alone would benefit from having a companion animal. I have written prescriptions over the years for people to get a dog or a cat uh, at an advanced age. I'm actually on one person's living will that if something happens to them, I'll take their cat. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't regret that decision either. I think they, they, they do so much better with having the cat in their house. Um, people do so much better with having a little dog or having somebody to be able to, you know, a dog to walk or a cat to play with. Um, I, I think it's huge. We have always had a dog in our office. I brought my German Shepherds to the office. My nurse brings her Australian Shepherd to the office. People love to see animals. Uh, it's calming. It lowers their blood pressure. Um, we bring animals into the room if they want to um, and then take their blood pressure, and it, and it goes down. So um, I, I, I'm all for um, pets being a part of people's family. And what podcast would be complete without talking about running? Um, I didn't mention from the early start, but uh, again, I'm coming up on my first 100-mile attempt, January the 13th, a long-haul 100. 
Uh, shout out to Andy Kroom, who's the race director, and uh, his people. I'm looking forward to meeting some people that have been on the podcast. Uh, Harvey Lewis will be running. Uh, the Brain Cancer Survival will be running the 100 miles. So um, I, I'm really excited about meeting a lot of people and trying out my 100-mile nutrition plan and my 100-mile running, walking plan. So we'll see how it goes. Um, um, I think I'm ready. Don't know, but it'd be a first try. I've never ran through the night. I've certainly been up lots of nights uh, over my career as a cardiologist. Uh, So we'll see how it goes. However, there was a study uh, looking at any running versus no running uh, on cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. And the title of the study is that leisure time running decreases all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. And the participants were from the um, Cooper Clinic in Dallas. Uh, And again, these people were health conscious people that um, signed up to, you know, have health evaluations for their um, longevity. They evaluated 55,137 adults aged 18 to 100 years of age with a mean age of 44. Uh, It was with a medical questionnaire, but they've had full physicals with blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol, body mass index, treadmill testing. Um, But for the purpose of this study, it was medical questionnaire based on how much they ran or didn't run over a 15-year follow-up. Over that time, there were 3,417 deaths from all causes, 1,217 deaths from cardiovascular disease. 24% of those 55,000 people participated in running compared to the others that didn't. There was a 30% decrease in all-cause mortality and a 45% in cardiovascular mortality in people that ran versus people that did not after adjusting for all kinds of factors such as blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol, body mass index, even smoking, age, alcohol consumption. So it trumped um, all of these things, stood out despite it. And it wasn't like they had to run a lot. That's what the the crazy thing was. Um, so even after adjustment, significant re- reduction in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality, and overall a three-year life expectancy benefit. And when you looked at how much they ran, it was divided in never running, running less than 51 minutes a week, less than six miles, one to two times a week, less than 506 metabolic units. Um, most of the running was less than six miles per hour or less than a 10, uh, or I should say, uh, 10 minute per mile pace or greater. Um, all of these factors, no matter how much was associated with a decreased risk in mortality. If people persistently ran through the 15 years of follow-up, there was a 20% and 29% reduction in all cause mortality and a 50% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So even five to 10 minutes a day, less than six miles an hour, um, there was a marked reduction in risk for all cause and cardiovascular mortality with respect to and controlled for all those other factors that we say increase your risk of dying of heart disease or all all cause disease. Um, Running was, not running was almost the biggest risk factor as hypertension for cardiovascular disease. 
there was a 16% reduction in um, uh, cardiovascular disease for runners, a 52, 15%, um, I'm sorry, there was a 16% increase in non-runners and a 15% increase in hypertensive patients. Three years decrease in uh, life expectancy for non-runners, 5.2 years decrease life expectancy for um, people with hypertension. So almost as much, not running is almost as bad as having high blood pressure. Um, compared with non-runners, runners had a 45% decrease in cardiovascular, cardi- I'm sorry, a 45% decrease in coronary artery disease mortality, a 40% decrease in stroke mortality. There is no medication out there. There is no cardiovascular procedure. There is, there is no cancer test or cancer treatment, I would, I would go on to say, that's going to reduce your risk as much as running very much a little bit every day, um, most days of the week. Five minutes. Five minutes. That's all you need. Five minutes. Why would you not run? Why would you not run? You know, I talked about Harvey Lewis a minute ago, but he has a friend um, that is 100, I don't know, 101 years, he still runs. Um, Don't have to run fast. You just have to run. When you run, both feet's in the air. That's the difference between running and walking. Um, So why wouldn't you want to do it? You don't have to run 100 miles. You have to run five to six minutes. Decrease cardiovascular risk factor mortality. Risk factors for running, eh, might twist your ankle, might fall down, you know, might have an injury now and then. Not going to kill you. Going to decrease your risk of all-cause mortality, decrease your risk of cardiovascular mortality. I know you're going to say your knees hurt. You played basketball when you were 12, and now your knees hurt when you're 70 or 60. Um, You're too big to run. Uh, You're too busy to run. You're too old to run. You have too many kids to run. Um, Five to six minutes running. And the thing is that if you start running, um, you're going to like it, and you're going to run a little bit more. And the more you run, the better you know, better things are. Um, if your knees hurt, the idea is to look at your running form. Had a guest on here a few weeks ago, talked about running form. Um, you know, it's something that needs to be learned in respect that you know, as we get old and stiff, we kind of lose our mobility. So mobility is very important. Our practice is geared at keeping people mobile and moving. Um, sometimes it's frustrating to get people to do it. Um, you know, everything comes before people's nutrition and mobility and movement sometimes, it seems. But I can't stress how important it is for proper nutrition and movement. Some people think they've got it. They don't, you know, um, but the reality of it is most people need some assistance in getting this, you know, down, whether it's accountability, um, the members that we have that are checking with us on a daily or weekly basis do much better than those that uh, ghost us, so to speak. Um, You know, when people say they don't need to see us, usually it's because they're not doing the right thing and they don't want to kind of fess up, so to speak. Um, we meet people where they are, but I'm always going to encourage people to move um, in some way every day um, because we're meant to move. So 
if you're thinking about, man, you know, I should kind of step up my game, decrease my risk factor for all-cause mortality, decrease my cardiovascular risk factor, improve my immune function so I don't get sick by reversing my high blood pressure, my diabetes, moving, which decreases inflammation, decreases C-reactive protein, how might I get started? Go on over to our website, drdelaney.com, and you can find out how you can join our practice in one way or another to get a lot of great information to get going. The more you talk to somebody, the more accountability that you have. We have wellness challenges in our practice, and those people that participate in our wellness challenges do much better than those people who never open up that newsletter. We send out a newsletter to our members once a month. We send out a general newsletter that they also get. Um, Again, we have wellness classes, nutrition classes, cooking classes uh, that people can learn on how to do it, how to do it well, how to prepare things, how to read a recipe and alter it so that you can look at just about anything and turn it into something healthy. The other thing that we talk about is, you know, the studies of, well, why do people say this is, this is better, that's better? Um, and we give people um, encouragement so that they can have that discussion if need be with why are you doing this? Um, and I, I would encourage uh, you to check out our website uh, if you'd like more information. So I hope that the end of the year is great. I wish you much health and happiness for 2024 and probably have one more podcast before I head up to Lakeland for the long haul 100. So happy running, even if it's only five to six minutes a day.